Our great God, you are the incomparable God. Who is like you? Who can we compare to you? Who has counseled you? Who understands you? Who has thoughts like you? No one. No one, our great God. So we come and we worship. And this morning we come and we confess there's so much we don't know. We don't understand. We need your help with. We even chafe at. And yet, our Lord God, you, you are working and you know. We thank you that we can come this morning. Lord, um, I pray for those who are here today who are suffering under circumstances beyond their control, part of the brokenness of this world. Would you just give a special comfort and grace come with a healing for them. You know exactly what each and every need is. Lord, those who this morning are maybe suffering because of our own foolishness, our own sin, and so we have consequences to bear, give us wisdom, hear our confession, let us come back, renew and refresh us. We thank you that you do not abandon us if we are your children. In Christ, you don't abandon us even when we deserve such suffering. But Lord, especially this morning, I ask, would you speak to us when it comes to suffering for your name? Something so alien, it seems, to our culture and our time for so long. But Lord, not alien, not to your people, not in any age or in any place throughout history. Always, you have called a people to suffer for you in some way. So speak this morning so that we might, Lord, worship you, the incomparable God, and know that what you're doing is beautiful when we see it and even when we don't. Speak, Lord. We'll give you the glory and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. For nine days during the summer of A.D. 64, fire raged in the city of Rome. It was well known that uh, the emperor Nero had long wanted to renovate the city. And as the fire destroyed many districts, Nero watched happily. Roman troops, in fact, even prevented citizens in certain areas who had come to put out the fires. The troops prevented them from doing so. And in addition, Roman uh, troops even started additional fires. The disaster, before it was all over in the city of Rome, greatly demoralized the Roman citizenry. Many were those who lost everything in the fires. With public res resentment against him rising, Nero blamed the Christians. They who were already slandered and already mistreated were an easy scapegoat. The letter of 1 Peter is written right around this time. We don't know exactly but scholars would pinpoint it somewhere right before or right after the time of those fires. Probably right before the time of Nero actually burning Christians, sticking them on stakes and covering them with pitch and lighting them on fire so that he could host his parties in his garden. Probably just before the, the uttermost events of the persecution under Nero happened in the first century. It's probably about when First Peter is written. We return where we, uh, to where we left off in that book, 1 Peter 
4.12. We come today to a passage that reminds us of the gospel, which is our only hope. But it reminds us also that the gospel is a message that offends. And some are those who will dislike both the message and, at times, the messengers. What is a Christian? A Christian is one whose only hope of forgiveness is found in Christ. They lay aside all other defenses and all other trust to cast everything upon the one who alone is worthy. A Christian is one in whom the Spirit now lives to share that hope with others. And that includes the grace to overcome the hostility that may come often with sharing that message. Peter, then, is written, as we have traced throughout this letter, about our hopeful, holy witness in a watching world. Today we're going to be speaking about suffering for Christ. Peter writes of how believers are unsurprised and rejoicing when it comes to suffering. Pick up with me, First Peter 4, starting verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome? What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. First, we see in our passage this morning in the opening few verses, when you suffer for the name of Christ, do not be surprised, but rejoice. When you suffer for the name of Christ, Peter encourages these beloved brothers and sisters, do not be surprised, but rejoice. Is this something that uh, is unique to Peter? Is this something where he just happens to be a, a masochist? James, brother of the Lord, will say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you, what, encounter trials of various kinds. Consider it all joy. Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles, after they've been jailed and they've been flogged, they've been brought before the authorities, they've been threatened, and they know the authorities have the power to take it out. Do you know what it says of them, you know, in Acts 5, it says they leave that place from the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, just one of many places that Paul will say these words are something along these lines. I rejoice in my sufferings. Well, where did all of these crazy nutball followers of Jesus get this idea? Well, maybe from the Lord Jesus himself. Peter, who writes our letter, stood there on the hillside in Matthew chapter 5 when the Lord Jesus himself said these words, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I ask, brothers and sisters, how then in the world 
is it that sane and otherwise well-balanced people are possibly to be joyful in such a, a situation when they have been wronged, when injustice has been done to their hurt? Well, believer, the truth is your ordeals have a purpose. We're going to see in our passage today. They are not random and they are not accidents because the hand of your father is behind them, especially when you suffer for righteousness, when you, when you choose to allow yourself to be obedient to that place where you suffer for the sake of Christ. This morning we are coming to a passage, friends, that is not the prosperity gospel, is it? This is not health and wealth and, and leisure and Jesus is just going to you know, give you all the castles on the earth that you want. He might give you one in heaven. God has purposed trials for you and for me. And they are designed to test you, the passage says. They are designed to prove you, to prove whether or not you are true in your faith and if you're truly transformed from the inside out by the Spirit. They are designed to strengthen you so that you are better able to walk in faith when you don't see the next time they come. They are designed to refine you and not only to prove you but to improve you. Christ knew this. Christ had a knowledge and an insight. He knew something because he is divine. He knew something effortlessly that you and I know only by redemption, only by transformation of the spirit and only through trial. Suffering in a broken world is not the greatest enemy. Far from it. It is in fact a tool for our refining and for God's glory. Do not be surprised, the passage says. Rather, we are to rejoice. Well, if Peter's not just out on a limb by himself, if this has been the chorus that followers of Christ and the Lord Jesus himself have said, then, then I'm going to need some help. I don't know about you, but maybe you need some help, and maybe we need this passage this morning. We're to rejoice. We can do this by the Spirit. Three motivations first that our passage gives us to this end, if you want to jot these down. First, when we suffer in hope for the name of Christ, first motivation is we share in the sufferings of Christ. When we suffer for the name of Christ and we do so with rejoicing, when we do it and we say, okay, God, you said to rejoice, and so I guess I'll just rejoice. When we do that, we share in the very sufferings of Christ, verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, it says. Paul will have the audacity to go a step further and say the words in one of his epistles, I fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now that does not mean that we needed, oh, Jesus to die on the cross, that was pretty good, but we also needed Paul to suffer and then we could all go to heaven. Oh, goodness sakes, right? That's ridiculous. Paul is not saying, I am filling up what's lacking because, because Christ sacrifice wasn't enough. He must be talking about something entirely different. And he is. He's, he's talking about sharing in the partnership in the suffering and sharing in the efficacy of that suffering as the word of the gospel will go forward, not easily, but that the word of the gospel will go forward in many cases only through suffering. So that's why he says, I do not know whether I will depart or stay. <laughs> as he labors in prison, knowing he might die. But he says, but I know if I stay, it is better for you. Because Paul the Apostle could say, without his fingers crossed behind his back, my suffering 
is for the going forth of the gospel. It's for your good. And so, in so doing, he was sharing in the sufferings of Christ for the going forward of the gospel in his generation, just as in so in many cases suffering is needed in every generation. Have you ever paused to consider that some people will only get to hear the gospel if somebody's willing to suffer? Man, that's sobering, but boy, that's encouraging, right? That's what we hear in this passage today. If you're going to be a witness today at times, then you're going to be, it'll be necessary for you to, to share in suffering. That will be needed. That's the first motivation. When we suffer in hope for the name of Christ, we share in the sufferings of Christ. Second motivation, when we suffer in hope for the name of Christ, we prepare great joy for our future. Okay, so you want me to rejoice in the midst of injustice and hardship and, oh, by the way, pain. Sometimes it's hard to just sing because we don't even have the strength. It hurts so bad. We're so exhausted. Our energy is sapped. Man, the Lord knows. The Savior who suffered in every way such as we and yet without sin knows. And I think He's gracious to meet us in what our rejoicing might look like. But the encouragement for us in that moment is to know choosing to rejoice in suffering for the name of Christ, in so doing, we prepare great joy for our future. Read the second half of verse 13 with me. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that, that's a purpose clause, this tells us what happens, so that when you do that, also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. This is speaking of something that's going to happen at His revelation, when Christ returns to gather his own back to himself, to, re to reward every deed done in his name. At his revelation, on that day, you know what? There will be tears of joy when we look at each other and we say, remember how we suffered? We did it for him. Oh, thank you, Lord. I love the clarity of the Spirit. We're commanded to rejoice when we suffer, if we know Christ, and if we suffer for His name, we're commanded to rejoice. But the end of verse 13 doesn't just say rejoice. It says rejoice with exultation. It's got the word in there, agaliaste. Uh, it's this little Greek word. It appeared in chapter 1. It's, it's exuberance. It's, you can't fake exultation. Now, I think... The rejoicing we're commanded to do now is not one that's fake, but I think it's very often that we do in spite of how we feel. But the Lord says, if you'll do that now, trust me, there will be a day when you will rejoice because of how you feel, and you won't be able to help it. It's just going to explode out of you. You're going to go, really, Lord? You let me suffer for the sake of your name? You used puny little me? And in my weakness, you met me and you let me share in your suffering so that you could do a work of the gospel in me and in somebody else. Really? I just, I'm beside myself with joy, Lord. Thank you. We'll say on that day. That's what, that's what Peter's describing for us here. Revelation 19.7, you can jot down, uses the same kind of language. It says that at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be this exuberant rejoicing. <laughs> rejoicing in trials now produces exultant rejoicing then. How's that for a motivation? 
There's a reward when God opens our eyes to see and then to persevere through it and say, you know what? You, the incomparable God, are bigger than this hurt. So I'm going to thank you. And I'm going to praise you. And on that day, I'll thank you even more. So what will it be like on that day for, for you and for me? Will you and I look back and will we say, you know what? I should have been much more careful in my witness for Christ. Will we be regretting that we weren't more careful on that day? Will we say, I should have hidden away from the possibilities of persecution? Will we say that on that day? I'm sure that's not what we're going to be wishing. I should have just stayed in bed more, right? I feel like that a lot now. Well, I look back and say, I should have complained more. Nope, I think I'm doing enough of that. Or we look back and will we say, Lord, I'm so grateful that the Spirit opened my lips to do the impossible and to praise you. That's what we want. That's the exhortation that Peter holds out to us. When we suffer in hope for the name of Christ, we prepare great joy for our future. Third motivation he gives in this opening portion. When we suffer in hope for the name of Christ, we experience the grace of God's presence in the present. Not only a hope for the future being stored up for us when we choose to rejoice, but when we rejoice, we experience the presence of God the, the, the experience, I'm going to say that all over again. The grace of God. See, I tried to like word it so cool, and then I can't even say it. So we experience the grace of God's presence in the present. At least tell me that that was worded cool. All right, thanks. Let's pretend. The grace of God's presence in the present. What you, what you need to notice with me here in verse 14 is a beautiful contrast. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Notice the contrast, reviling on the one hand, but blessed on the other hand. What's the contrast? It's the words of men, huh. and it's the estimation of God. That's the contrast. And one of those doesn't matter a bit, does it? Doesn't matter a bit what people say. Oh, it hurts. Man, it feels like it matters. And man, it feels to me like it matters a lot every day. But man, alone with the Lord, it doesn't matter. They might revile you, he says, but I bless you. In fact, he goes on and he even uses the word glory. The spirit of glory and the spirit of God rest on you. In that moment, the spirit is saying through Peter, I come to make my home with you when you rejoice in suffering for the sake of the son. Now, there's something even cooler and even way more profound going on there, and I didn't figure it out myself. Somebody told me, so I'll tell you. The phrase, the spirit of glory and of God resting on you, the spirit resting on you, I think these early believers who knew their Old Testament well would hear the echo of Isaiah 11 too, that, that a shoot will come out of the, the lineage of Jesse, that a branch will come. Isaiah 11 is a messianic passage. And you know what it promises? That he will rule with righteousness and his judgment will be perfect. And it says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Peter takes the same language. And he says, believer, in some small way, in some facsimile of that, just 
as the Son was anointed by the Spirit to rest on Him with His power, so in the same way, when you suffer for my name, the Spirit comes to rest upon you. Do you want that? If you know Christ, there is not a single believer who would say, no, I I don't want that. Are you kidding me? I want that more than anything else in the world. My flesh doesn't want it. But in my renewed spirit, I desire that. Oh, to know your presence like that, Lord. You ever had a situation where right in the heat of the moment, right in the thick of the battle, you just had a clarity that pulled you out of the emotions. Maybe it was a fight. Maybe it was the potential to gossip. Maybe it was something else. It was some kind of a temptation. I don't know. But in that moment, you just had a clarity where you were able to separate yourself. In the circumstance, the situation is still going on, but you just knew clear as day, man, I know exactly what God is telling me to do. It's kind of like the, oh, you know, the heavens open. And maybe you actually speak a word, or maybe you stop speaking. Maybe you step forward. Maybe you walk away. Whatever it is. But in that moment, there's a clarity. I think that's probably not far off. At least it's a part of that special presence of God's spirit in this way. And in this way, the spirit resting on us, or in this situation, I think, would be for the comfort that Christ so often promises his followers to be with them when no one else is. We experience the grace of God's presence in the present when we choose to rejoice at any time we suffered for his name. You want, to, you want a sweet picture of this or you want to get a good glimpse of it? I don't think anyone would disagree that this is what Stephen was experiencing. Remember Stephen? Remember when he was dragged before the council and he, he makes this beautiful speech rehearsing, rehearsing the salvation history of the nation of Israel and, and, and they want to kill him, but at first they're like, yeah, okay, they start nodding their heads and they start agreeing with him, right up to the point where he says, and oh yeah, by the way, all of those promises of God to send the Messiah, and then the Messiah came, and then you all killed him. Well, that gets Stephen killed. But you remember what it says was the experience of the uh, council members as they looked on to Stephen in making his defense, knowing his life was on the line? It says they beheld his face as the face of an angel. I, I think that was... The grace of God's presence in Stephen's presence. And I think God supernaturally by his spirit gave Stephen the ability as the stones flew that would eventually crack him in the head, knock him to the ground, knock him out and crush and kill him. As the stones flew, gave him the wherewithal to stare into heaven and to see the Lord Jesus standing to receive him at the right hand of the Father as he suffered persecution for the sake of the name. When you suffer for the name of Christ, brothers and sisters, Peter urges us this morning, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Secondly, in our passage this morning, Peter is going to tell us, suffer, suffer not for evil, but for Christ. Suffer not for evil, but for Christ. 15 starts this way, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Suffer not for evil, but for Christ. If, if I wanted to earn my preacher card this morning, um, I would have said it this way. I would have said, suffer not for shame, but for his name. Yes. 
And that, and that sounds pretty hokey, but it's actually what the words of the passage say. Don't be ashamed, but suffer for the name. All right, I earned my preacher card. I'm good for another week. Again, we have three exhortations from Peter to suffer not for shame, but for the name. First, he says, avoid unnecessary suffering. That's what we have in 15. Make sure that none of you suffers. And he lists all these things that all would agree are not things that we should be doing. But what is he doing in this passage? He's, he's acknowledging that there is a different kind of suffering. Not all suffering is of itself inherently a blessing. That's a bummer. Because I'm good at bringing suffering on myself. And I would be probably the most spiritual person you've ever met if all suffering could make me holy. But Peter's also doing us a favor and encouraging us in this. He's urging us, he's urging them to avoid unnecessary suffering. He's letting us know that not all suffering is suffering for righteousness sake. Not all suffering is suffering for the name of Christ. And the point is that we're not to be masochists. We, we don't seek pain. We don't just, you know, it's not like I'm going to go out and do penance because that will make me more holy. It just doesn't work that way. Moreover, we acknowledge that Scripture is wise when it warns us about suffering for sin. And so Peter exhorts these followers of Jesus, look, I'm saying all these things about how suffering can be used for your good, but don't get the, the nutty idea that you should just go out and get a lot of suffering. No, keep out of suffering if you can, at least the kind that you bring upon yourself for bad choices for selfishness, for sin, for breaking the law and for dishonoring God and for whatever else is opposed to the Lord Jesus. Scripture is wise to warn us of suffering for sin. So I just think this side note needs to be brought out this morning because at least for me, I know that, that much of my suffering is actually avoidable. Most of my suffering probably are consequences of my own selfishness and I bring it on myself. But Proverbs sings this truth that we suffer because of our own choices. Proverbs 26, 27, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Elsewhere, the treacherous is caught by his own greed. Elsewhere, the rod is for the back of fools, right? Dozens and dozens of passages in Proverbs tell us not only to be righteous, but also tell us don't be dumb, right? We can just be foolish and bring suffering upon ourselves. For some of you this morning, some of your suffering is entirely due to your circumstances. Not necessarily because of something you've done wrong, but maybe just because it's part and parcel of living in a fallen world, having a fallen and broken body, having relationships or a society or whatever else that just doesn't work as it, as it would have if we'd have all stayed in the Garden of Eden. And so there is a suffering. For some of you, your suffering is for the sake of Christ, and you were willing to choose it and embrace it, and that's most of what we're talking about this morning. But here in this one little side note, we're just picking on or helping out with that third piece. Some of us bring suffering upon ourselves. Some of our suffering is become of, because of selfishness. Some of it is avoidable. Suffer not for evil, but for Christ. First, avoid unnecessary suffering. By the way, uh, full disclosure, I stole that phrase from an article I read this week, which isn't even about First Peter, but 
I just don't want to plagiarize. Good. Second exhortation, suffer not for evil but for Christ. What could bring you shame is for God's glory. What could bring you shame is for God's glory. He tells us in 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. You know what we read very, very differently than the original recipients of this passage? It's that title, Christian. Because, right, as you read through Scripture, you know, where did they get that name? It wasn't from other people who were followers of the way. It was from the opponents of Christ, right? First at Antioch, and then I think there's a second place. Uh, I think Peter, before one of the uh, governing officials, uses the word Christians. Uh, it wasn't a term that, by and large, was popular, so far as we know, amongst believers in the first century. It was really a term that at least originally began with the opponents calling them, oh, they're like, they're, all of those, they're like those little Christs. Remember that? Remember that guy Christ that we killed? Remember the criminal? Remember that guy who tried to upset everything? Remember that guy that got the headlines in the newspaper that everybody knows was a loser? All these people are just like him. They're the little Christs. And, and you know what the Christians did. They said, amen, call me a little Christ. This is, I, I don't know a, a better compliment you could give me. But when Peter writes it at this point, they're still in the teeth of that understanding. So when he says, if any of you suffers as a Christian, you need to sneer when you say that in this verse because that was the sense. You ever been called a name for the sake of Christ? Ever been looked down on? Ever had someone talk behind your back? Ever had somebody think less of you? Because you have an imaginary friend. I hope that's working out well for you, you big weirdo. Because you live in your little la-la land, that's great. But here in the wor real world, we do things differently, okay? If you ever face that, then you've known some piece of it. But what is there to potentially what could bring your shame is ultimately meant for glory, the Spirit tells us. So embrace it and glorify God in that name. Man, you know what? I am actually a Christian. Sorry. And I hate to say it, not even a very good one. I wish I was a better one, you could respond. But man, all glory to God that he is making me just a little bit more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, day by day and week by week. That's one of the great encouragements to be able to rejoice in suffering for his name. Helps us do that. It helps us give glory to God as the host of heaven look on and they say, hey, look, another one of those feeble, frail sinners, yet empowered by the Spirit, standing and praising the Savior. Gabriel, did you see this? Come here, check this out. And they give glory to God. Third exhortation in this part, to suffer not for evil but for Christ, is in the, in the Lord's hands, suffering is for refining. In the Lord's hands, suffering is for refining. 17, it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, and then Peter quotes uh, from an Old Testament passage to prove his point, to bolster it. He says to say, he's going to say the same thing in verse 18 as he said in 17. He's just using a passage of Scripture that they would know. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What's the point here? He makes a, pur a purposeful contrast. Are you suffering? Yes. But your suffering pales in comparison to those who disobey the gospel of Christ and will suffer the penalties of hell. 
that's a sobering and incredibly helpful reminder the next time you suffer. Or to put it in the words of C.S. Lewis, if you're a believer, at the moment of your worst pain, that's the closest you'll ever get to hell. Oh, thank you, Lord. The rest of C.S. Lewis' quote, by the way, is that if you're not a believer, your greatest day of success and rejoicing, sorry, but that's the closest you'll ever get to heaven. That's a sobering reminder for us today. Peter's doing something C.S. lewis here in a way, I think, to put into perspective. Suffering is part of our existence here, but it's nothing compared to what we deserve. When it says here it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, I, need, I think in a context we need to rightly understand that this is a purifying judgment, not a destroying judgment. Why do I think that? Well, there's about a dozen reasons, but I'll give you three or four from context, and I think that'll be enough. One, because in verse 12, it says, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. And back in chapter 1, Peter's already gone to great lengths. In fact, chapter 1 and this part of chapter 4 share about three or four word groups of, of parallel where he is saying he's refining you, he's purifying you, he's testing you, he's proving you. Dokamazo, dokamazo is what you do to um, refine the gold and make it better. You prove something's value and you improve something's value. That's what the Lord does through testing. By the way, the devil also will tempt you, but he is doing it to destroy you. This is not what the Lord does. Second, because the word here for judgment is, is not the word that's most commonly meant for the destructive kind of judgment, the judgment which is judgment judgment. It's the estimation judgment. It's a slightly different Greek word here. Thirdly, we've already got this at the beginning of chapter 4 because we know this idea that suffering is to refine us because here's how he began this chapter 4.1, if you'll remember way back to when we looked at it. 4.1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same person, same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's already told us that our suffering helps chasten our flesh and discipline our worldly desires to wean us off of everything this world would tell us is going to satisfy our soul. Also, I'll just, I don't have time to read it, but you can go there. Malachi 3, if you're interested, go to Malachi 3 and read the opening four or five verses. It's a beautiful passage about um, the Lord, through the prophet Malachi, is calling out his rebellious people, and they deserve it. And there is a huge warning, but then in chapter 3, he says, I'm going to come to you, but he doesn't say, I'm going to come for your destruction. He says, I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to come for your purifying. And then he just piles up phrases about purifying and cleansing and fire and refining and a fuller's soap. If you even ever remember that phrase, it's probably from Malachi 3, because it's the only place in my life I've ever heard it. I think those same kinds of words and the same thing is exactly what's happening here. Suffering for doing right helps a man break with sin. That's what we looked at back at the beginning of chapter 4. You can revisit that message if you want. Suffering for doing what is right. Suffering when we do what's right. It actually reorients our souls from the lusts of men to the will of God. That's what he said back at the beginning of chapter 4. And he's going to end up saying the same thing here at the end. So this is the Lord doing good work through what one author has called his severe mercies. 
the severe mercies of God, sometimes he will use suffering to do what he can only do occasionally through suffering. And what a great, merciful God he is to do it. It ends on this note in 18, this portion, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What is the difficulty in saving you? Did you know you're hard to save? You're really hard to save. I'm really difficult to save. I mean, my sanctification is just a lot of work for God. I mean, thankfully, He's infinite, so it's not tough for Him. But sometimes it even requires suffering. To chasten me, to teach me, to draw me back. But if that's what it takes to remind the redeemed of their salvation, what will be the outcome for those who don't know Him? Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your hope, if you have never settled your account with a holy God, then we pray that you would know you can't escape suffering. And in this life, if you choose to follow Christ, you will invite greater suffering because of Christ. But oh, it will be worth it. And more than that, whatever suffering you find in this life will pale in comparison to what your suffering will be for all eternity, unmitigated, conscious, in the presence of God without any hope, relenting never. So, run to the Lord, whose arms are open wide, who welcomes the one who says, I'm a sinner and I need you. He will do business with you and make you his child. Suffer then, not for evil, but for Christ. Finally, this morning, Peter encourages us, live for the will of God in suffering. Live for the will of God in suffering. I know my typical MO, if you ask, would be to say, at least if I'm honest, with you, with myself. What do you do in the midst of suffering uh, or, or the view of suffering? Escape, get away, run at all costs. Yeah, don't seek suffering. But in the midst of suffering, live for the will of God in it. That's what Peter says. Verse 19, therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Okay, so how do I actually do this? What does it look like in my life to rejoice in suffering? There are two commands given here for us, and they are life-giving, positive commands for us in the midst of our suffering for doing good. First, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Entrust your soul cares. Entrust your, your deep burdens into the hands of, of a father. The word here for entrust is this word for depositing it and leaving it. It's, it's putting in a place where it's locked up and has safekeeping. Those cares or concerns of your souls, not that we should pretend we don't have them, it's to give them into his strong hands because he is a good father. By the way, this entrusting, it's exactly what Peter has already told us Christ is modeled for us. If you care to, look back at chapter 2, verse 23. And while being reviled, Christ did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, at his, at his uttermost moment of need, when suffering to the uttermost, when, when facing the greatest injustice that is ever known or ever will be known, 
in all of history, in all of existence, as He pays the penalty for sin and takes the wrath of God upon Himself. You remember His words, right? Father, into Thy hands I safekeeping my spirit, right? I entrust my spirit. It's what the very Son Himself did, and if the Son needs to do it, I need to do it, and you need to do it. We can live through suffering, and not only live through it, live unto the will of God and earn reward and experience His presence. We can do that, but only because of the incredible power of the Spirit following the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting ourselves to God. We can live for the will of God in our suffering. And there are two little encouragements here. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator. We can live for the will of God in the midst of suffering because we know that God is sovereign. Because God is sovereign. Who is this God into whose hands I am to entrust my every care? The one who is creator. Oh, he's just the one who is before all time, made everything, and today, moment by moment, upholds it by the word of his power. Everything exists and continues because God himself sustains it. And the moment he turns his attentions away, everything will explode into oblivion. Hebrews chapter 1. He is sovereign. And so I can entrust my cares into his hand. But he's not just creator, but he's a faithful creator. He's the one who makes covenant, keeps covenant. He's faithful to his every promise. He knows every child of his own who, whom he's redeemed. And there may be times on the face of the earth when those who follow Christ, it might look like they are forsaken of God. The writer of Proverbs says, I've never seen the righteous begging bread. That's a principle. Has there ever been a poor person who was a Christian? Has there ever been a Christian who has suffered need? Oh, you better believe it. It's a principle, but it's a principle also meant to make the point in the end, God has not forsaken and never forsakes his own. So entrust yourself to a faithful creator. And finally this morning then, how do we live for the will of God in suffering? First, entrust your, the very cares of your souls, but secondly, don't grow weary in doing good. I didn't expect that, but it really is a far better prescription than what I would have come up with. Don't grow weary in doing good. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Many times in this letter, Peter has spoken of our good works. He's urged this community of believers not to retract not to pull back in the midst of a time of duress, but instead to be willing to allow themselves to be vulnerable. This is just not natural, right? This is a, a supernatural thing He calls us to, and only the Spirit can do it in us. Fear, shame, and persecution seek to silence you and me, but now is not the time for silence, right? Now is all the more so the time to speak up. It's now all the more so the time for boldness and say, look, brother, I know you're hurting. Friend, I know you're hurting. Man, I'm hurting too. Let me tell you the only hope I have. They may turn on you for it and say, dude, you're, you're not much of a help telling me what a wretch and a sinner I am and how I need God. I'm doing just fine, all right? And you may suffer for it, but don't grow weary 
in doing good, not just by your words, but by your deeds. We're to be gentle and bold witnesses, and we're to work for the good of our society. This is why we do shine partnership in the schools. This is, this is why we gather with one another in our community and do wood ministry. This is why we try to stay involved in uh, the International District through Juntos or, or reach out to international students through ISI. This is why you take meals to, to neighbors and friends in moments of their suffering. This is why you, you go out of your way to try and have people in your home or try and hang out with a neighbor who otherwise would just as soon drive into their garage and not talk to you. This is why you do those things, right? Because we want to entrust ourselves by doing good, that, Lord, you might bear fruit, that we will rejoice for eternity that you let us be a part of. So question for you, brothers and sisters, and for me. Have you pulled back in the last two years at any point? Have you? If so, consider that. Take it to the Lord and say, Lord, maybe there was stuff I used to do and I just don't do anymore. Why? Why did I stop? Or maybe there's some place where the Lord is calling you to a new, new initiative to reach out, to open up, to build. Are you more isolated now from the needs around you than you've ever been? Are you more separated from people in need now than you've ever been? If that's the case, then maybe today is the day to say, you know, I, I need to make a phone call. I need to reach out. I need to meet somebody for lunch. I need to do something. That's for all of us. By the way, please don't take that and say, yeah, I need everybody else to do that for me. You're missing the point of the passage. <laughs> right, but th that's what I do, so that's why I say that. Um, Lord, okay, help me. Live for the will of God in suffering. Entrust your soul to him, the faithful creator, in doing what is right. I believe it's the Heidelberg Catechism, and if not a direct quote of the Heidelberg, it's uh, at least a new city or another catechism, tells us this, the very first question of the catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer from every good seven-year-old who's known it, our hope is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we suffer for Him, the Spirit calms our surprise, and He invites us to rejoice. Stand with me, and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank You that nothing can separate us from Your love in Christ. Those born again by your spirit, we are yours forever, and we thank you. Lord, let us be a people attuned to your spirit. Holy Spirit, have room to speak, to, to make it conscious in our hearts what we're thinking and feeling. Most gracious God, I pray for your help right now. We just ask for your presence and your comfort and your protection. Lord God, help us in all this to serve you this week. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.